Well, good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We're delighted that you've been able to join with us today, and I also want to say hello to those of you who are watching, um, and hopefully uh, you're able to see us and hear us loud and clear. And if you don't normally join with us, um, please do get in touch. We would love to get to know you. Uh, For those who are visiting, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor of the church here, and um, it's my pleasure to welcome you as we come to worship the Lord. This weekend has understandably been dominated by news of the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, and in one way or another has led us all, I'm sure, to think about life and death, and especially when someone who has been present for all of our lives and passes away, we become very reflective. We wonder about what it is that makes for a full life. And I was just thinking that actually every time we come to church, every time, that's the question we're trying to answer. What is it that makes for a full life? How do we have a a right understanding of life and death? And we find the answer is repeated many, many times throughout the pages of Scripture. And that's why every time when we come to church, we turn to the pages of Scripture, to the Bible, because God wants us to have that understanding of life and death and what makes for a full life. And He's given that to us in His Word. So, I want to read some verses to you from Psalm 103. Psalm 103. is a psalm of David, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. These are wonderful words from David in that psalm, with that reminder of all that God had done for him, words that truly all of His people can speak, to rejoice in who the Lord is, in what He's done for us, in how He knows all of our weaknesses, He knows all of our failures, all of the things that would stop us from coming to Him. And yet He provides everything we need 
so that we can bless the Lord, so that all that is within us might praise Him. And uh, let's join our hearts together as we come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for who You are. When we think of You and we think of all that You have done for us, we just have to praise You. When we grasp the depth of Your love for us, surely there is no other response that is fitting than for all that is within us to want to bless Your holy name. You alone are worthy of our praise. Because it's only you of whom it can be said is the same forever. The only one to whom the sun and the moon and the myriad of angels in heaven will bow down in worship. We owe everything to you, Lord, and you have made us for this to praise you with every fiber of our being. And you know our feeble frame very well. You know that we are dust. We are your creatures, creatures who are here today and gone tomorrow. And we confess, Lord, we have been guilty of forgetting your benefits, of neglecting to worship you as our loving Creator God. And Lord, it's not just that we are weak, that we are dust, but we are rebellious dust. Why would you ever want to take notice of us, Lord? We deserve to be blown away in your judgment. And yet today, here we are worshiping you for your grace and your favor. Rejoicing today that you forgive our iniquities, that you redeem our lives from the pit, that you do not deal with us as our sins deserve, but you give to us your steadfast love. And you've done this, Lord, by sending your Son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sin. We thank you that Jesus, our Savior, took on a true humanity. He, too, became a, a creature from the dust. And despite all his perfections, he was treated as we deserve to be. He felt the full blast of your wrath and judgment so that we could be forgiven. And it's for this, Lord, that we praise you now, and we will praise you for all eternity. And Lord, we ask that today you would revive us as we dwell on the gospel, as we dwell on who Jesus is, as we open your word, Lord, speak to us. We do take time this morning to pray for, for Queen Elizabeth as she mourns the loss of her husband. We do thank you for, for Philip, for his life of service to the country and to our Queen. But we do pray, Lord, that our Queen's faith in the Lord Jesus would be her comfort today, that the gospel would continue to be her hope, 
And that's what we pray for ourselves, Lord. As we have often reflected, we all face different challenges in these days, but we all come now to the same resource, confident that each one of us will find it sufficient for all our needs. Because today, Lord, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us more of him, more of his glory, and that we would be made more like him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to come to our Bible reading now, which you're going to find in the New Testament book of James. Uh, we've had a little bit of a break from this letter, so it might be worth me just taking a moment to, to remind us of what this letter is about. It's written by James, the brother of Jesus, written to Christians in the very, very early days of the church, Christians who are facing persecution. Um, they, they are followers of Jesus, and it has brought them, in many ways, nothing but trouble. They're a church under pressure. And as um, we all will have experienced to some degree at some point in our lives, when pressure keeps getting applied, it keeps building up, eventually it bursts out in some way. And for these early Christians, it was showing up in their relationships with one another. James is able throughout this letter to put his finger on a few things. They were, they were fighting with each other. They were saying harsh things to each other. There was selfishness, even unfairness, showing up in the life of the church. And this letter is a series of lessons, a series of reminders for a church under pressure. James has told them that their trials are not to be wasted, that they're never to forget the goodness of God, that they must always remember how to listen to God's Word, to remember that the words they use matters, to remember that true wisdom comes from God, not from this world. And today we're going to see that James has another powerful reminder for God's people under pressure. So let's listen as um, uh, Olivia reads for us James chapter 4, uh, reading from verse 13 down to verse 17. Thank you. Today's reading is from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Amen. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Stirring words. Words that say, hey, don't 
sit around feeling sorry for yourself, no one can take your destiny from you. You're in control of what you do next. You're in control of where you're going to take your life. So, dust yourself down and do it. You are the master of your fate. And I don't know how many people have had a burst of motivation from that poem over the years. It's had spells where it's jumped to prominence, um, Nelson Mandela's favorite poem, apparently. But from what we've just read in the book of James, James would say, don't listen to a word of it. He would say, don't listen to a word of it. You are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. If you think like that, you're headed for ruin. James's message to the Christians under pressure in these verses is remember who holds the future. Remember who holds the future. James really challenges us to think about just what there is about our lives that we control. I mean, almost as if he, if he was to, to question the, the, those concluding lines of that poem. He would say, well, okay, if you think you're captain of your, of your fate, uh, or master of your fate, captain of your soul, then tell me, what is it about your life that you are in control of? What do you control? Well, the first thing James says here is, do not live under the illusion of control. And there's something very deliberately normal about this example that James gives us in verse 13. He imagines the Christian businessman who wisely, surely, is planning out his future. He has a business plan in place. Look at his words. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This is how people speak. This is still how people speak. There's something good about it. Planning is right and healthy. But James wants us to pause and think about just how many of those things the man assumes he has control over in the way that he speaks. He thinks, first of all, he has control over time, doesn't he? Well, it, it's, it's today or, or, or tomorrow we'll go, and we're going to spend a year there. This is, this is what seems to be in his control in the way that he speaks. He speaks as though he has control over the choices that he has to make. He will decide the day. He will decide which town. And of course, he speaks as if he has control over the success of his venture. We'll go there, we'll be there for a year, we'll trade, and we will make a profit. James wants us to see that there is, there's no reference to God in this man's thought at all. The man is in control of time. The man is in control of his choices. The man is in control of the success, and so the man plans accordingly. 
But this is foolishness. Look at verse 14. James says, this is a foolish way of speaking, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Never mind what you're going to do over the next year. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. You haven't even got control over Monday. And you're talking about 2022? A former prime minister was once asked what he feared most in politics. And his reply was, events, dear boy, events. And how wise that answer was. Because we might make all of our plans, but we have no say. We have no control over events. Our five-year, our one-year, even our one-week plan can be thrown into utter turmoil because we simply don't know what's coming. We do not hold the future. But that's not all. It goes deeper than that. The problem is deeper than that. When we live our lives presumptuously, and that's really what James is getting at, isn't it? This person who makes all these plans presumptuously, presuming that all of these things will work out as he has planned. When we live like that, we actually, James says, we live in denial of what we are. That's the question in verse 14. What is your life? I mean, even just think, what is your life? That's his question. What is your life? I mean, you're acting as if you're in control of things, when in fact, your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It is like the vapor on a hot cup of tea that is here for a moment and then is gone. That's the sort of image that James uses here. And it is the repeated message of the Bible, more than just saying, well, remember, you're going to die someday. We understand that. But it's actually living as though we're going to die someday. Now, that's a different question. Even if we live to be 99 years old and live a full, healthy life, life is still short. Still short. Think of it, think of your life in, in terms of the history of humanity. We leave at best only a small ripple. Think of it in terms of the ongoing cycles of creation, of nature. Our coming and going do not even register. The writer Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is the reality, isn't it? The earth just trundles on. We were there for a second, and we haven't left a mark. And then think of your life in comparison to God Himself, who is eternal, who we were singing about there, who is unchanging. Prophet Isaiah would say, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. It's powerful language, isn't it? But this is precious perspective, because it is the case, whether we, whether we like to admit this or not, in a few generations' time, no one will know that any one of us gathered here today. 
We might have a place card on a family tree somewhere, but a hundred years down the line, that's all it will be. Your life is a vapor, quickly gone, quickly forgotten. We live, and perhaps we think highly of ourselves. Perhaps we might be full of our own self-importance, but before long, we will die. And we'll be forgotten. That's life. Thousands of years of human history will testify to it. But we just don't get this. In fact, we're a little bit uncomfortable to be thinking about it. We just don't get this. We live as if this isn't true. We pull the duvet over our heads and we pretend that things really are otherwise. And this example that James gives, as mundane as it is, it really gets to the heart of it. He says, you're living your life without any reference to God at all. When your life is here today and gone tomorrow, how could you waste it in that way? James isn't against the businessman planning a business trip. He's not against trying to make a profit, but he is at pains to stress that to do those everyday things without any thought for God, without any room in the system for, of, of your planning that God might be at work, or for God to intervene in some way, or to even ponder that God might have something else in store for you is, as he puts it in verse 16, it is boasting in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. And it's this attitude of heart actually takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's this attitude that is a foundational part of all sin. God created human beings. We're introduced to Adam and Eve in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, and the distinction that the account of creation uh, intends us never to blur is the distinction between the Creator and His creatures. God made and sustains everything. He made human beings to thrive. But the way that human beings would live the fullest possible life is by living a life that depended on God. We're creatures. That's what we were made to be, to depend upon our Creator by listening to His Word and doing what He says. That's how human beings were designed to live. But instead, Adam and Eve thought they would be fuller in life if they were freed from God. They allowed their hearts to be persuaded that they'd be better off without submitting to His rules. In effect, they wanted to be their own God. They knew best what would give them the fullest life, or so they thought, and so they rebelled against God. They disobeyed Him, and the whole human race with them fell into ruin, suddenly distant from God. And that applies to you and me as well. This is the root sin here. They wanted to live without depending upon God. And James says, this is what's happening. <laughs> this is what's happening. 
We're living as if we don't depend upon God for every breath that we take. There's another way of thinking of this, and that is to to think about what God is like, what we would call the attributes of God. Now, Now, God has some attributes, some characteristics, you could say, that He wants us to display as well. So, for example, God is love. God is good. God is just. And those are things He wants us to be as well. But God also has attributes that are unique to Him. Those are the things that make God uniquely God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent, everywhere present. He is unchangeable. He is self-sufficient. These are the ways in which God is not like us. Now, the problem comes when we try to be those things. You know, those things that uniquely make God God, we try to be those things. We want to be our own gods, and so we act as though we know everything. We act as though we can do everything. We act as though we don't need anything from anyone else. We live with the illusion of control. We don't just forget about God, we try to replace Him with ourselves. We become the highest authority in our little world, and that is surely the very definition of arrogance that James gets at here. You boast in your arrogance, and oh, how James wants us to be reminded of the truth, without which we will waste our lives. He says, you are not God. You need God. You only exist because of God. And if you're going to do anything constructive in any second of any day of your life, then it will only be because of God. And by and large, we, we must admit we're not, we're not prepared for death. We're not prepared to accept this reality of the vapor that is life. We dare not speak of this, this, and it feels it at times, doesn't it, this rapidly disappearing vapor that is our life. And this last year has actually revealed so much. Where a virus has stalked the world, has killed an enormous number of people, where, rightly, governments have acted to try and prevent the loss of life, that's what you'd expect them to do, However, as the weeks have rolled into months, have rolled into years, we've become increasingly aware that life is about far more than simply avoiding death. For many people who have found themselves almost entirely isolated in their final years, they've most movingly testified that as far as they can see, for all that's been done to protect them, that there are actually worse things than dying, worse things than dying. Living without hope, for example, living without love. And James would surely say, living without God… Haven't we found that to be the case? 
really had to do a reevaluation of what it means to live. It's about more than just avoiding death, that's for sure. Hasn't this past year been an eye-opener about the things that should really matter, about how flimsy our hope is when we're living under the illusion of control? Because we've seen just how easily it can be stripped from us. And so, if you're here today and you get this warning from James, if it really does strike home to you, then, then look again at this passage, because he's not content just to make you feel bad about our, about, uh, or make me feel bad about my arrogance and my boasting. He wants to help us. James says, don't live with the illusion of control, but the correction is this, instead, make your plans in faith. Don't live with the illusion of control, instead, make your plans in faith. And you see James's solution in verse 15. Um, that word instead is there. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And you'll have seen the crucial addition that's here, the phrase, if the Lord wills, if God allows it, if it fits with God's plans, then it is to consciously recognize that there is someone, something above us, that there is one who is above this whole world, who determines the course of our lives and to whom we are subject, whether you want to be or not, that is the reality. It's the language of dependence that James uses here. It's how we were made to live. But there is a starting point for being dependent upon God. And it does start with owning that description of the human condition that James has put out there, this, this arrogant boasting. The starting point is to say, yes, that is who I am. Yes, I, I do resent at times submitting to God. I have rebelled against Him. And, and this language of dependence, the starting point is to come to God dependent upon His grace to forgive us for our sins. We must never forget when we read the book of James that James is writing to Christians, people who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. He has this foundation in place, and it is already a foundation of depending upon the Lord, where we say, just like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, what was in their heart is in my heart as well. I rebel against God. I do the things that suit me. I think I'll be freer if I do my own thing. And we need God to reveal to us that that is what separates us from Him. God can have nothing to do with us when we're in that condition, but such is His love that He sent His Son to save us to live the perfect life that we haven't lived, the life of obedience, the full life, but to die the death that we each deserve for our sins. If we come in faith in Christ alone, then we find forgiveness. And that is the definition of depending on God, isn't it? To say, I can't earn it, God. I, I can't be a better person on my own, God. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me new life, and I will only find that in Jesus Christ. 
And I want to urge you today, I don't want to ever skip over that. I don't want ever to assume that in any of our discussions around the Scripture, that this is what needs to be foundational. Anything of what I'm going to say about some of the applications of what James says here has to build on that foundation of first and foremost depending upon Jesus alone to be right with God. And I love what James imagines us saying here in verse 15. If the Lord wills, and what's the first thing? If the Lord wills, we will live. I mean, he takes it right back to basics, doesn't he? It's not if the Lord wills, the stock market will. It's if the Lord wills, we will live. Recognizing that the breath in your lungs, each one of them, I mean each breath and each lung, is dependent upon the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will live. Now, in some circles, there is very much a culture of saying, Lord willing, every time someone speaks of future plans. Or in some cultures, the church notice board is littered with the initials DV which stands for Dio Valenti, which is Latin for God willing. And that is driven by these verses in James 4. Christians do that because they've read what James says here and feel that that's an appropriate response to to acknowledge that it's all dependent upon the Lord, our plans for the church, our, our plans for our lives. But if I'm honest, in my experience, this very easily can become a pretty thoughtless turn of phrase. It's just something you say when in fact, there's a real depth to James's words here. If the Lord wills, then I'll. If you're thinking about it, you cannot say that lightly. You cannot. And there's a couple of things I want to bear in mind here. First is, you cannot say, if the Lord wills, about any plans that you know God wouldn't want you to do. So, let me start with the ridiculous to show you what I mean. You could never say meaningfully, if the Lord wills, I will steal money from my work. So, I mean, you could go ahead and try and do that, and you might even have success in stealing from your work, but that in no way proves that God approved of it, because God has revealed in His Word that it is not His will for you to steal. So, you could never say, if the Lord wills, I will steal from my work. If the Lord wills, I'll move in with my girlfriend. If the Lord wills, wherever you want to take that, I'll throw all my money away at the casino. You know, the Lord would never will for you to do that. So, we cannot use the phrase lightly. But I think that's probably assumed by James here. He has in mind that God might want us to change our plans. So, heading off to that town for a year to trade is perfectly reasonable. But James says, hold it lightly. Hold all your plans lightly. God's will may prove to be something else. So, please notice this. I mean, James doesn't say you shouldn't plan for things. He doesn't say, stop making plans, just go with the flow. That is not what he says. 
You know, the part of the statement that doesn't change is the plan-making. It's simply, he says, we need to acknowledge that if the Lord wills, we'll live, and we will do this, and we will do that. Make the plans, but always recognize that the Lord is sovereign over it all. And so, be ready for God to change things. God might change things. And, and which one of us probably cannot point to the time where the Lord changed our plans? I mean, I never imagined I would be here. You said to me 20 years ago I would be standing here. I'd probably have laughed in your face. And if you'd seen me, you would have laughed in your face as well. And how many of us, how many of us have been there? We planned this, and it didn't work out. And there's an awful lot of us are glad that those plans didn't work out. The Lord is sovereign over it all. When our plans don't work out, when our best efforts seem to be frustrated, we tend to get angry about it. We can fall into self-pity about it. We can feel that, oh, bad luck just seems to follow me all around. But here, James has the perspective we need. And for a world which collectively has had all of its plans shifted in the last year, this is so valuable. The Lord is sovereign. And for us, for those who know the Lord, whom the Lord has promised to be with, promised, He's promised to fashion us to be more like His Son, then we need not be resentful when the plans change, however painful they may be, because we're able to say, if the Lord wills, this will happen. But if He wills something else, then we trust Him. If He changes the course of the plan… then we're able to go with that without being resentful because we trust Him. The one who's in control is good and always good. We may be disappointed, we might be grieved, but we need never despair. We know that the Lord knows all about it and that however our plans might have changed, that will be for our good if we respond in faith and trust. James has given a, a kind of example of um, this failure to respond to the Lord's will, how it might change our plans. He's already given us an example of this back in chapter 2. I say a kind of example of this. It's not explicit, but in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, James imagines this situation where this need arises. So I become aware of this need in my church family. Someone is without food. Someone is without clothes. And I respond to that need by saying… I have the means to help them, and I say, sorry, I wish you well, but I've got other plans for this. I've got other plans for this. And this is surely how James's final application in chapter 4 fits in with this. 
And he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, the Lord sometimes changes our plans because He needs us to meet some particular need at some particular time. And the real danger is that we become so committed to our plans, so committed to our boastful arrogance, that we say, sorry, I can't help with that just now. I've got plans. Now, sometimes these are difficult judgment calls. I'm not denying that. But I think sometimes we are so committed to our plans that the Lord would need to shake the place with an earthquake to get me to see that actually the needs in front of me matter, to be ready to move to meet the needs that arise. Uh, What's described here in verse 17 is, is what we would call the sin of omission failing to do what God requires us to do. And uh, you find a number of examples of this in Scripture. Uh, Perhaps the most striking is in Matthew chapter 25, where the Lord Jesus speaks about that that great final day when uh, when people will be separated, and to the one there will be the, the commendation, and to the other it will be condemnation, because Uh, you saw me when I was hungry, says the Lord, and you gave me no food. And they'll say, well, when did we see you hungry, Lord? We never saw that. And he says, well, as you did to the least of one of my brothers, so you did to me. And this is a very simple way that, that we can be forced to change our plans to do the Lord's will. And I wonder, how about being willing to set yourself up to let the Lord change your plans sometimes. Let me give you a very simple way we can do that. In the life of this church, um, certainly if you're on our mailing list, you will have received an invitation to be part of contributing to practical support in terms of pastoral care in the life of the church. Um, Some people are able to cook meals. Some people are able to do gardening. Some people are able to do almost anything. Some people are blessed in that way. Some people are able to just give time to do uh, unskilled tasks. And by saying that we can do that, we make ourselves available so that actually what happened in James chapter 2 is that it may become apparent that there's a specific need that we can help to contribute to, one that is sufficiently serious that we might have to say, Lord, I had planned to do this other thing, but actually, you've, you've brought this before me, and I'm going to do that. There's a practical way, and I know that, that Pauline and Marjorie would be very happy to, to hear from you if you're able to help in that way. James urges us to be real about what life is. Unless we do so, we can never truly live. And I think the biggest challenge that comes to me here is actually um, I have struggled here in reflecting on my prayer life. Um, Often when I'm explaining in the simplest terms what prayer is, prayer is talking to God, but it is more than that. It's a bit more than that. Prayer is depending upon God. It is a daily way of reminding myself of who God is and who I am. I come to God dependent 
upon him. I'm telling God that there are things that I can't do. I'm telling him that there are things that I've done wrong. I'm, I'm telling him that I need him. That's what prayer is. I'm coming before God and I'm saying, I want to bring everything I'm doing today to you and to ask you to help me because I can't do it in a way that honors you unless you are with me. I want to do the things you want me to do in the way you want me to do them. Help me, Lord. And the challenge to me is just often how far short of that my own prayers are. And it reveals that I'm not really depending upon Him. I'm not in my prayer life saying, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Someone once described prayerlessness as practical atheism. Practical atheism. Think about that for a moment. Because there's a sense in which prayer really does reveal what's important about my relationship with God. Am I living in boastful arrogance? Or am I living in prayerful dependence? Take that as a challenge to you individually, but what about us as a church family as well? Uh, We're at a stage in the life of this church where we're looking to progress with appointing a new staff member. Are we doing what James says here? Are we saying, well, you know, maybe in June or July we'll appoint such and such a person and he'll spend several years here and win many souls for Jesus and then the church will grow to about 250 people? And is that what we're doing? Now, what would be wrong in wishing for all of those things? Not a thing. But if we think that we just need to make the right appointment, identify the right skills, put in place the right organizational structures and do the right work, then what is it that makes us any different from any other organization? We too can be proceeding in an area like that with boastful arrogance, self-dependence, instead of prayerful dependence upon the Lord. And do you know what the primary evidence of prayerful dependence is? It's prayer. You were expecting something really complicated there, weren't you? The primary test of prayerful dependence is prayer. Simple as that. And yet consistently in the life of most evangelical churches, but including ours, you can be sure that the number of people willing to gather for prayer is a fraction of what will gather on a Sunday And I fear, brothers and sisters, that James's diagnosis here could well fall at our door. Let us not boast in our arrogance, but let's come before the Lord in everything, in how we proceed as a church family, in how we live out our daily lives, and to say, if the Lord wills, We look to the Lord Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed that this cup might be taken from him and prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. Let that be the prayer of our lips each day day of our lives. Well, thank you again for being with us. Let's close, um, if you're able, to say the words of the grace together. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.